Hey, it's Erica. I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to Global News What Happened to ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. A bright blue and yellow sign marked the destination. Through its doors, a gateway to new worlds. Because the treasures found inside on a Friday and Saturday night would transport us through space and time and introduce us to new friends and foes. Today, that place is nothing but a distant memory, one that many will never get to experience, lost in the name of progress. The perfect video store... Welcome to Blockbuster Video! ...is popping up all over the country. There's one near you. Blockbuster Video! Wow, what a difference! I'm Erica Bella a journalist for Global News. And today we travel back in time to find out what happened to Blockbuster. It was a video rental store and so much more. The bright lights and purplish carpets, rows upon rows of movies, the smell of candy or popcorn, the sound of the latest release playing in the background, Many of us remember it like it was yesterday. And now, decades later, virtually none can be found. To find out about how Blockbuster began, I turned to Alan Payne. He wrote the book Built to Fail, the inside story of Blockbuster's inevitable bust. He also worked in the video rental industry for over three decades. And one point, he owned and operated multiple Blockbuster franchises. We had our peak at uh, 41 stores, and uh, those were about evenly split between Alaska and, uh, and Texas. And for several years, we actually managed a, a group of, of 25 stores in the southeast. So we owned 41, and we were running another 25. Uh, so, you know, we had a we had built up a relatively good size infrastructure to run a company of that size. He said in the late 70s and early 80s, there was a lot of pushback because the thought of watching movies at home was unfathomable to movie studios. Had the Hollywood studios gotten its way, not only would video stores not be around, there wouldn't even be VCRs. There uh, and, you know, maybe even DVD players, they wouldn't be around because the they tried to outlaw it or, or get the government to outlaw VCRs in the, in the late 70s, early 80s. It was a case that went all the way to Supreme Court. And shockingly, the VCR was, was uh, voted to be legal only in a five to four vote by the Supreme Court. It almost went the other way, but it was a very close vote. So the, the, the studios did not believe it, would, it, it, was, it was legal that it violated copyright laws for people to be able to duplicate what they had produced and to watch it in their homes. 
when video rental stores got going, they actually tried, they lobbied Congress to outlaw the video store. Uh, but that never got to a vote. And uh, so in all those years that the, that the industry was developing, there was, there was question as to whether or not it would even be legal. And back in those days, a lot of those stores carried adult and X-rated stuff. It was, not, it was not considered a mainstream family kind of business. And it just didn't attract big capital. But there was one store that would change the course of the video rental industry. In the mid-1980s, Blockbuster opened its first store in Dallas, Texas. It was the only way that people could watch a movie whenever they wanted with no commercials. That had never happened before. You had to go to a video store to do it. And Wayne Heisinger recognized the potential of it. When he got into the business, it was about a $3 billion industry. Within just a few years after he had started Blockbuster, it was a, it was a close to a $10 billion industry. So Blockbuster more than doubled the size of, of the video industry single-handedly. In 1986, Wayne Heisinger bought controlling interest in the company and took over as chairman and CEO. He was tasked to grow the video rental chain into something that had never existed before. At that point, Allen was working for a grocery chain in Texas called HEB. It's the largest grocery company in, in Texas, but, but most people have probably never heard of it. But it's a, it has, they have 350 stores and sales of close to 30 billion a year. So it's a, it's a, it's a very large company. In the mid 80s, video was just getting started and going mainstream. And, and most of the grocery stores, for people that remember those times, were, uh, they had video departments in them. And so did HEB. They decided that they wanted to take it a step further uh, because the freestanding video stores were just getting started at the time, the large ones anyway, and Blockbuster being the biggest. And HB decided they would open up their own stores. Uh, these, are, these were not grocery stores. They were freestanding video stores that looked a lot like a Blockbuster, and they were called Video Central. And they opened 35 of those, and I ran the operations of those stores for, for HEB for seven years, and most of those stores competed directly with Blockbuster. In 1992, the owner of HEB, Charles Butt, decided to exit the video rental business. There was a lot of questions about where the business was going to go. We had been successful enough, and I think he saw a good chance to just cash out and, and focus on the food business. So he put the stores up for sale and eventually sold them to a company called Hollywood Video that became Blockbuster's biggest competitor. Allen also left HEB at that time to run several Blockbuster franchises in Texas and Alaska. The store's owner was a cable television company called Premium Cable. And when they wanted out in 1999, he stepped in. So I put together the money and bought those stores in uh, early 2000. And that's when I became a franchise owner. So I was very, very late. I've been in the business. I was in the business for the entire time. But I, I didn't become a franchise owner until very late in the game in 2000. By that time, Blockbuster had already been through all sorts of problems. And the Netflix challenge was beginning. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling 
wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. For many, Blockbuster's demise could easily be blamed on Netflix. I'll be honest, I thought that was the case too. But I spoke with many people for this episode who say that simply was not the case. At the height of its success, Blockbuster had about 9,000 stores worldwide. But there is something interesting that Alan brought up to me. These weren't just franchises. There was about 5,000 Blockbuster stores in this country, and about 1,200 of those were franchises. Blockbuster was not a traditional franchise company in that it, it had a lot more corporately owned stores than it did franchise stores. Blockbuster looked at franchising completely differently. They wanted to own most of the stores and they used franchising to help, help ramp up growth or develop markets that they weren't particularly interested in. In 1994, Viacom, a media and entertainment conglomerate which owns Showtime, Nickelodeon, and Paramount Pictures, acquired Blockbuster in an $8.4 billion deal. This was a massive and costly deal, and Allen said that's when the troubles started. Three years later, Blockbuster was in a complete freefall. And, and to put it in perspective, Netflix was not even a company yet. But Blockbuster was a cash flow negative company in 1996. In other words, they were not generating enough cash to finance all of their growth. To put it in perspective, the average Blockbuster store in 1994 was doing about $900,000 in volume. By 1996, it had declined to $700,000. In a retail business that's largely fixed cost, that just kills your economics. It's not that they were that they weren't losing money, but their cash flow had had fall had declined to the point that they couldn't fund their continued expansion. And they were still opening several hundred stores a year, but yet their profits were declining. So if you're investing all this money into 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 the business and your profits are declining, you're setting up some difficult circumstances for down the road because every store you open, it creates an opportunity, but also creates a liability. You've got rent and all the expenses to go with it. And they were opening up a lot of stores that probably should have never been open. And it was becoming a very bloated company. Keep in mind, the video business was basically flat. It would have a little growth in some years and it would decline a little in some years, but it was not a growth industry. Yet Blockbuster was continuing to open several hundred stores a year because that was the only, that was the only way they knew how to grow. They, they had a hard time growing the business with the, with the stores that they had. Despite the financial challenges from the outside, customers saw a company expanding and growing. 
Blockbuster was one of the most recognizable brands in the 90s, and it went beyond movies. They had used the brand to branch into all sorts of things. They had a, you know, they had a blimp. There was a Blockbuster Bowl football game. Uh, there was a Blockbuster credit card. There was, uh, there was even going to be a Blockbuster land to compete with Disneyland. Some people may remember Discovery Zone. That was a, that was a company that was owned by Blockbuster. And, and they got into the music business in a huge way. Uh, CDs were, you know, taking over the industry back in the, in the 90s. But so they got into that business. None of those businesses worked. They all failed. And of course, Blockbuster Land or Blockbuster World that was going to be in Florida to compete with Disney World never happened, obviously. Allen owned several Blockbuster franchises in the early 2000s. We drastically lowered the prices in all of our stores increased the inventories and like overnight became the highest growth franchise group in the entire chain. I thought that that would have, in fact, our, one of our stores was the highest growth. One of our stores in Alaska was the highest growth store in the entire world that year. And it was all on account of what we had done to, to change the business model in the stores. And I thought at, at that time that maybe that would kind of start a dialogue with blockbuster executives of, well, but maybe there's a different way to look at this, but it, it never changed. I never had a legitimate discussion about the business model with a blockbuster executive, never. They weren't interested. If the business model wasn't enough of an issue, 1997 also saw the introduction of something that would only increase Blockbuster's competition. In 1997, the DVD came on, which, which revolutionized the video rental business and the, and the home entertainment business in general. It also gave birth to Netflix that very same year because Netflix had started in 1997 and started mailing DVDs in little envelopes to homes. People forget that's how Netflix started. They were mailing DVDs to homes for 10 years before they ever streamed a movie. So the DVD also gave rise to Redbox and video rental kiosk, which people still see out there today. Uh, so the, the, the DVD created unbelievable opportunity for people in the video rental business. Some of us seized it. Others, it became the reason they failed. Uh, Blockbuster's reaction and how they managed through the transition from VHS to DVD, I believe is what killed them. It created all kinds of opportunities. For example, in those years from 2000 to 2007, we tripled the profit in our company in those seven years, just by taking advantage of the popularity and the, and the, and the better economics that, that, that DVD uh, provided. In those same years, Blockbuster essentially died. Viacom bought for $8.4 billion in 1994. They spun it off to the public just uh, six years later. It was valued at $2.5 billion then. Well, Netflix wasn't even a factor. Uh, in 2000, Netflix was too small to even be a factor. Uh, and the company had already declined by about 70% in, in, in what the market thought it was worth. Unlike Blockbuster, the strength of Netflix was its business model. One Allen said made all the difference. Netflix began as a, as a small company that was, that was mailing DVDs to customers. 
the, the key to their success in those early days was when they when they discovered the popularity of subscription. That changed the game. It, it's surprising to those to, today to look back, but uh, back then nobody had ever really thought about a, a subscription business model. Netflix kind of did it out of necessity. It was the only way they could figure out a way to attract customers because just mailing individual DVDs through the um, uh, to, to customers through the mail, they did that initially and it didn't work very well. When they took off is when is when they started to sell subscriptions where you know you just get as many as you want for the same price every month. That worked. It grew so fast that they start to have they started to have cash problems. So in 2000, because they were running out of money because it was growing so fast, they tried to sell the business to Blockbuster for 50 million dollars, and Blockbuster pretty much dismissed it out of hand. Uh, there was never much discussion. As far as I know, there was only one meeting that was held. They turned Reed Hastings, who was the founder of Netflix, down, still running it today, uh, and uh, kind of the rest is history. Uh, two years later, Netflix went public at a value of, uh, I think, around $100 million. But it's important to remember that they were still a relatively small business that was mailing DVDs. They didn't, they didn't stream their first movie until 2007. Uh, and it really didn't become a significant part of their business until several years later. Uh, so all this time that Blockbuster is failing, that most people look back and they think, well, Blockbuster failed because Netflix streaming business. Blockbuster was dying long before streaming was a, was a big factor for Netflix. There's another incident that Alan said likely contributed to Blockbuster's downfall. Someday, you'll remember where you were when you first heard that there are no more late fees at Blockbuster. It was a pretty controversial decision in 2004. People that don't understand a rental business and how important it is to keep control of your inventory so you know when it's coming back. It might have sounded pretty cool to say, we don't charge late fees anymore. But essentially, Blockbuster handed the the, the, the control of, this, of, the, of the supply chain to customers. The customer, the renter, becomes part of the supply chain. And they've got to bring it back on time or your whole business model falls apart. That's what happened to Blockbuster. It wasn't as much that they gave up $300 million in revenue, which was extremely important to them because that's about all the money they were making at the time. Uh, what really killed them is that they lost control of the, of the inventory that generated all the sales and profits. That was in 2005 that they started that. And five years later, they were gone. In 2010, Blockbuster filed for bankruptcy. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters. And, what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. 
pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I wanted to understand what was happening when Blockbuster made the move to file for bankruptcy. I spoke with Tom Casey. He was Blockbuster's chief financial officer in 2007. Tom said even before he joined Blockbuster's executive team, he had his own gripes with the company. Well, Blockbuster was the 800-pound gorilla that behaved that way towards both consumers and actually the companies it was acquiring. It was really a roll-up of a lot of independent um, movie rental stores. And so um, as a customer, though, I observed this the ridiculous late fees that made no sense. And it would make me angry and then I'd have to argue and then they would take off the late fees and why do they have to stress me out? Why can they just have a reasonable program? So that, and I, and I felt bad for people who didn't, you know, protest, uh, who just simply paid the fees and that doesn't make any sense, but those people walk away disappointed. He was aware of the financial hardships Blockbuster was facing. The company did have a lot of debt on it and that was put on by um, Viacom, the controlling shareholder in 2000. Five uh, when they did a um, they spun off the company and did a dividend recap and took uh, cash out of the company, uh, so that burdened the company with a lot of debt. Um, that combined with the way in which late fees were um, eliminated, uh, so went from one end of the spectrum to the other. You know, uh, really charging too much to charging too little and disastrous results. I don't think that was particularly well executed. The combination of that debt and that reduction in cash flow really did imperil the company from a financial point of view. Tom agreed with Alan. The removal of the late fees really hurt Blockbuster. Basically took the cash flow of the company, as we call it EBITDA, from $700 million down to uh, basically a third of that. So it really was a massive body blow to the cash flow of the company, in essence. Um, so that that combined with the debt a ratio of a billion two of debt on less than 200 million of cash flow is a is a dangerous place to be. This you know creates financial risk. Not only that, there was there were debt maturities of the that uh, were coming due at a bad time. However, this all happened before he came into the picture. Blockbuster was absolutely innovating. In some ways, I think innovating more than Netflix at the time. Um, we were both in a race to drive subscribers. We both saw. DVDs going away, new technologies evolving. And the question was, how could we stay relevant and, and grow in that environment? And so we were both in a race to drive subscribers. And we felt that we had an advantage that we could offer a customer the option to access media in a store, you know, by mail, as Netflix was doing, or digitally, uh, and do that either on a subscription basis or rental or purchase. So it's really the ultimate inconvenience was our goal. And we felt that, and it's true, I think, that our, our platform was superior. That together with the brand is a, is a um, you know, powerful offering for the consumer uh, as opposed to Netflix, which, which didn't have uh, stores. And our stores ultimately became a liability because the technology didn't require them. But financially, they weren't really a liability because they were relatively short-term leases that could just be you know, not, not renewed. And so we could work our way out of the stores. 
He says Blockbuster was looking to get into the digital space. So we bought MovieLink in uh, 2007. It was really, in those days, digital offerings were really not that great. It was really because it's all about when the studios will allow their content to be um, available um, digitally. And it's digitally for purchase, digitally for, for, uh, you know, rental. You know, the iPhone was just, you know, coming of age right time. There really wasn't mobile access was just starting. And so it was small, but we could see the future. And MovieLink was just, was, was establishing a foothold in that space. You know, we had discussions with some of the other media companies who have since grown quite large. Um, uh, I guess I can say it was even, you know, Roku, we talked to, we talked to Google, we, we had conversations with anybody and everybody who was developing an interesting digital platform. But all the work that was happening behind the scenes would never come to fruition. Blockbuster was about to be hit by yet another obstacle. This was the city this morning. Misery outside. Well, it's comments about the collapse of Lehman Brothers. And inside, a financial crisis unfolding on the trading floors as shares headed downwards. The Dow plummeted as much as 800 points, confirming fears the worldwide financial crisis is worsening. In September 2008, Lehman uh, went bankrupt and the financial crash immediately followed and the banks had no money. And we were in a situation where we had uh, 300 million of the billion two of debt coming due. It was bank debt that uh, needed to be refinanced with those banks within nine months of the market crash. And the banks had no money. So there was no, it was just, there was no money. So there was no way you could, and it was coming due. And when, when debt comes due for companies and they can't pay it, that's a massive problem. And what ends up happening is then you have alternative lenders coming in that charge gigantic fees. Uh, we paid over $25 million in fees to refinance a $300 million credit facility. I mean, it's in, insane. But why? Because that, it was either that or declare bankruptcy at that time. So um, when companies get into trouble like that, you have to think really hard about uh, treating all the constituents in the capital structure fairly. And so, but anyway, we did the best we could. That's that was the hand we were dealt with the financial crisis, and we were able to refinance it at a very costly uh, rate. The financial crisis was Blockbuster's final nail in the coffin. It was that late October, early November 2008 period when we saw the market falling apart, and I could just see the writing on the wall because we had just, you know, achieved such great results on top of of great strategy and with good momentum. And, um, and then all of a sudden you realize, okay, somebody just put up this giant wall in front of us, <laughs> right? I mean, that's really the essence. And it's like, oh no, like they all, that just took all the air out of the balloon or whatever the right metaphor is. It just, you know, just like now you, now you just see that, okay, this is not going to be the growth trajectory that we were all, you know, excited about. This is going to be, you know, all back full, the restructuring cabal piles on fees to lawyers and bankers and fix the debt. Meanwhile, you know, Netflix will grow and we're stuck, you know? So I just remember the mood of, of all of us, you know, changing quite a bit, knowing that, um, you know, this is your, you know, we're just moving the deck chairs around the Titanic or whatever the (laughs) metaphor is, you know, I mean, just, you know, it's a sinking ship. It's not gonna, there's no way to save it. In 2011, Dish Network bought Blockbuster at auction for $320 million. But it hasn't done anything with it since. 
Meanwhile, one by one, Allen saw several of his blockbuster stores shut down. Well, it happened over a long period of time, so uh, I don't I don't think it really hit me until right at the very end because we were so busy trying to, you know, we were still profitable when we closed the last store. So it's not like we were, you know, on a rush to, you know, to, to close it before we all went broke. 2018 saw Alan close his last stores. And I remember when I made my last trip to Alaska and uh, I went, you know, we got the last two stores closed or they were about closed. And I know I remember going to the airport to leave and thinking I was walking in that airport for the last time to, to do that, at least on business anyway. And uh, when I sat down to wait for the flight, I said, boy, when I leave, this is it. I'm not coming back. And uh, I think that was, the, that was the first time it really hit me. It, 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 hit, it hit me really hard then because yeah. I knew that that was the end. For Alan, it was a devastating loss. But it wasn't just him and his employees. It was such a way of life for most of the American and Canadian population. I mean, over half of the, of the households in the, in the U.S. were in a video store every week. I mean, it was, it was that big of a deal. So what did it, would, would some of those stores still be around today had it been managed differently? There's no way to know because Blockbuster fell before its time. So it never even got an opportunity to... Uh, to compete in the more in the more modern world. I mean, it sounds archaic for somebody to want to go into a store now to go rent a movie. But there was for the people that were doing it back then, they know that when done right, there was something magical to going into a video store and seeing all those movies on on in the store and being able to talk to people about it and picking out what you wanted and go home. In some ways it was more efficient because now in order to have access to all the product out there, you've got to subscribe to multiple streaming services because it's all carved up now. In those days, we had it all. Uh, It it was all in a video store. So you might be wondering, are there any blockbusters left? To answer that, I got to take you to Bend, Oregon, where Sandy Harding lives with her family. So growing up, my aunt had a video store. So, I mean, I definitely have been exposed to the movies. And, and I kind of laugh sometimes. I remember our first VCR that we had at home that still had the cord attached to the remote. So you couldn't get very far away from the VCR because, you know, the cord was only so long. Um, but no, I remember watching movies at home when I was a little kid, um, VHS tapes. Somehow, video stores kept finding a way into her life. Her husband worked at different mom-and-pop video stores throughout college, but she never actually thought she would work at one. That was until she was suddenly out of work and turned to her best friend. So I called her up and said, can I just, can you just give me a part-time job of like, give me something to do to talk to some somewhat of an adult um, conversation. But anyway, she worked at Blockbuster and she's like, well, sure. She's like, but you know, we're getting ready to open up a new location and we really need a manager. And I'm like, oh man, I don't know if I really want to manage right now. I really wanted to take the time off and it was summer. Anyway, so that's kind of how I got roped into it. So it's supposed to be a part-time job and it turned out to be um, opening up a brand new location. That was in 1992. And since then, Blockbuster has been part of her life. Then things changed in 2018. And I was like, oh my gosh, that means that we're going to be the last store in America. And that just like started all of this. And 
it was crazy because from that moment on, I was like, you know what, we might actually survive this and we might actually be okay. And then we spent that next year as the last one in America and then Australia closed and we became the last one in the world. But, you know, prior to that, what, three months before that, uh, from March to, no, that's more than three months. That's what, four or five months. You know, that was, I didn't know that this location was going to last out 2018. I thought for sure at the end of that 2019, we were going to be closing. And so um, it definitely was a whirlwind of emotion. Now people from all over come to visit her store in Bend to get ahead of the 90s nostalgia. And I've had families that have come in and said how important it was. And I actually had one gal came in and I was helping a customer and I looked up and I saw her at the corner of my eye and she was standing there and she had tears coming down her eyes. And I was like, is there, is there something wrong? Can I help you? And she was telling me about how, you know, her parents had gotten divorced. And when she would go visit her dad, it was really important that they would go to the video store on those nights that she was with him and rent a movie. And he had just recently passed away and she had seen her our documentary on Netflix and she had traveled here to see the store and it was bringing back so many memories of her dad and her nights. And she was just so appreciative of being able to, you know, share that. The store has come to represent so much to so many. We get those kind of stories all the time or we have people who will come in and be like, Oh, well we met and we had our first date there, or we met working at a blockbuster and we got married. Can't tell you how many people we've had come in and do that too. So I've been very fortunate to hear those stories and, you know, be able to experience those things with people and know how important they were. But you're right. Family, family night in video stores was everything in the eighties and nineties. Having something you can grab a hold of, I think was the one thing that people ask me all the time with uh, Netflix and streaming and services. And, you know, that was great. That was the new big thing, but people really missed the opportunity to come in and hold onto a movie and walk around with it. And I think that that's what we see a lot of people coming back to do now too. It's been dubbed the last blockbuster, and Sandy has really transformed the business to provide customers with an experience. And there's another thing that makes this location special, family. So it's kind of fun that, you know, one of the things that people don't know is on the back of our our break room door is over the years that I've worked here, all my kids that have done put their height on there, kind of like at home. And so if you walked in and looked at the back of our um, door, you would see everybody's names and their little line. And so now I'm starting to get um, the grandkids, you know, the young ones coming in and the kids that work for me now, their kids are coming in and, and standing at the door and we're marking their na- their height on there and we're kind of waiting for them to get old enough to come work for me. But, um, but yeah, no, it's definitely a family business. As Alan and Tom mentioned, many things contributed to Blockbuster's eventual demise. But I asked Alan, what lessons can we learn from all of this? Blockbuster is a classic example of of so many startups that are, they find big success early on because they seized on an idea that nobody else has seized on. And that can take all kinds of different forms. But Blockbuster, uh, under the leadership of Wayne Heising in those days, did an absolutely brilliant job of seizing an opportunity so fast that nobody could keep up with them. But they never made the transition from a startup to an operating company. I don't know if there's one thing. I just think it was a series of events over several years where Blockbuster had lots of opportunities to really transition from ultra successful startup to, okay, now we got to start grinding it out and paying attention to competition and learning how to run our business better. And Blockbuster never was that company. Even to the day they they shut their last door, they were never that company. 
I brought that same question to Tom Casey. It was a ubiquitous brand that had a lot of positive attributes and meant a lot to a lot of people. There were hundreds of millions of blockbuster cards printed. And I think that um, one of the rules of you know, business is, I mean, you know, I think that the culture is so important. I think it had grown big and arrogant and acted that way towards its customers and to others, um, including companies it was trying to buy. So I think there's a sort of a big company, there's a lesson of sort of big company arrogance and serving customers well um, that's learned. But there's also a lesson of sort of financial stability and, and not over-levering businesses, you know, to the point if, if you can see changes coming, uh, you, you know you're going to need capital to invest and uh, redeploy in new ways. And you can't do that if you put a mountain of debt on a business. So it's, I think those are some of the basic learnings of, uh, of Blockbuster, but it's a shame because it was, it was such a giant ubiquitous brand and, you know, who knows uh, whether or not it'll be resurrected in some way that would be kind of, kind of nice. For Sandy and the last Blockbuster, survival has been tough. Yeah, it's all about adapting. So it's all about constantly changing. You know, COVID was a huge hit for us. Um, as it was with everybody else in the world. Um, And immediately our rentals were cut in half. And had we not had the t-shirt sales and the merchandise and our online business, we would not have survived COVID. So we are very grateful all of those people who came and bought t-shirts or bought them online because uh, that definitely has kept the doors open. Um, So it's kind of interesting, you know, with COVID also uh, another thing that happened, you know, movies weren't being made and you didn't have, the theater wasn't open. So releases weren't coming out and everything was going straight to streaming. So now I'm like, okay. And then our final vendor that we had went away. Like the one that we got our red track movies, which we had rev share programs with studios. So we would get, you know, hundred copies of something or we get 20 copies of something. Well, suddenly those guys were gone. I have to start buying movies myself. And that happened very rapidly. But the store is now thriving, thanks in part to our ability to adapt to the times. Well, if there's no movies coming out, we don't have movies to sell. So it's like suddenly that area that we had with all of our previously viewed movies, it was gone and we had nothing on the shelves. And so we ended up taking that out and putting in racks of t-shirts and sweatshirts and um, all kinds of fun little, you know, tchotchke kind of stuff, you know, keychains and, and postcards and stickers and all kinds of fun stuff. And so you come in now and you've got the traditional, you know, rental business all around the outside. And then the center of the store is all retail. And it's just kind of fun to know that I started retail, went to movies, and now I'm back to doing movie retail kind of a thing. So um, it's very interesting. But the store does look different, but everything is still blue and gold. We still have the popcorn ceilings and the Hermica countertops. And it's still, you know, the store uh, opened in 1992, and it still looks the same. So it's kind of crazy. As for the future, well, that's always unclear. I'm happy to say I think we've got a couple more years. Um, but I think that I want people to remember that if when you pour your heart and soul into something and work together as a family, and I mean, it's not just me. Again, I, I said earlier that I get to be the face of the store, but it's definitely not just me. It's a, a team of people behind me that, that make this happen every day. But when you work hard together and you have a, I don't know, it's just about hard work, dedication, and being able to adapt that really can make wonderful things happen and being a part of a family and treating people, um, not just your customers and your employees, but everyone, your community, when you treat them all 
um, like they're special and important to you and you don't get so greedy with the, you know, money and the different things behind you and you just keep working for it as a positive, good place to be, good things will happen. And uh, I hope that's legacy we leave, that good customer service and hard work and dedication um, can persevere. Thank you for joining me this week. Global News What Happened To is written and produced by me, Erica Vela, with producer Dila Velezquez. Our audio producer is Rob Johnson. Also, thanks goes to Drew Hasselbeck, supervising national online journalist for Global News. Let us know what you thought of this episode and please share it with a friend. It will help us grow the show and bring you more incredible stories. You can also help us out by giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also reach out to me personally. We are always looking for stories. So if there's a new story you want us to revisit, you can reach me on Twitter at Erica Vela or email me at erica.vela at globalnews.ca. Thanks so much and we'll see you next time. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.